seeking better ways of doing things is actually very innovative, right? There's no idea that's new under the sun, honestly. And how you kind of put all of those things together is the formula for you to be able to push things to the next level, move to the status quo, surf any kind of chaos, pilot any kind of chaos, because you're like, okay, I've seen these things before. Sometimes you've just got to surf the chaos. I really wish I came up with that term, but I didn't. That is courtesy of my friend, AJ Thomas. And in this episode, AJ and I sit down and we talk about what it means to surf the chaos. AJ is a chaos pilot for people and culture at X The Moonshot Factory. And we're going to dig into her background, her experience, how she approaches innovation, and so much more. And we'll be right back with that conversation after a brief word from our sponsor. It's time to let go of the past perceptions of HR. Amplify is a new model of agency design from the ground up to support business and people leaders navigate the new world of work. We do that through two platforms. Our HR executive search practice is a new model of agency that moves away from traditional transactional search models with our flat fee pricing structure and advisory on the front and back end to help our clients attract and retain transformational people leaders. Our Amplify Academy is a unique platform to support continuous learning and build readiness, capability, and global networks for today's HR practitioners and leaders through the AI Learning Lab, peer learning cohort programs, community, and a range of resources to support their growth. You can learn more at AmplifyTalent.com. Now, on to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Redefining HR Podcast. I am your host, Lars Schmidt. And today is a real treat. You know, I, I have the honor of talking to so many different people in this podcast. And this is episode 135. So as you can imagine, that's a lot of conversations. And, you know, all our leaders who I admire and respect their work, some are friends, some are collaborators, um, some have been mentors, and some are great friends like today's guest, AJ Thomas. So AJ is the chaos pilot at X The Moonshot Factory. And if you've raised an eyebrow in hearing that title, it's cool. We're going to get into that and learn all about what a chaos pilot is. So AJ, uh, obviously, you know, you and I don't need an introduction, uh, but for viewers and listeners who are maybe discovering you for the first time, I'd love to have you open up with a brief intro. Hi, everyone. AJ Thomas. And uh, you spell that with just two letters, A, J, and then Thomas. Usually I get asked, how do you spell your name? <laughs> um, but I am the chaos pilot um, focused on our talent experience at the Moonshot Factory here at X. And I'm also a wife and mom to three darling kiddos and recently became a children's book author, award-winning children's book author. And I love all of the work we get to do in the people and culture space. And I spend a lot of my time there as well. And it's a book that you actually wrote with your daughter. And I know you're modest and won't plug it. So I'm going to force you to do it. What, what's the name of the book? So for, uh, for the audience, if they want to check it out afterwards. Absolutely. So the book's name is Courage Takes Flight. And you can find it on couragetakesflight.com. My 
then 10-year-old daughter, she's 11 now, her and I actually wrote the book together. And it has a message for both children and for adults as well. But it is really about self-belief and courage and leaning into the unknown. So yeah. Love, Thanks, it, love it. I read it. It's fantastic. So definitely, definitely check that out. And, you know, you've, uh, we're going to get into your career. I'm sure uh, the audience is very curious about kind of what it's like to work in a people function at a place like the Moonshot Factory. But before we even get to your current work, I want to kind of get in the Wayback Machine because you spent the majority of your career in HR and recruiting. And I always love to get that origin story. You know, what, what originally drew you to the field? Yeah. Well, you know, what's really interesting is if you kind of look at my profile, it's very nonlinear, but it's always centered me back into the world of HR, to the world of people and culture, recruiting, talent, etc. I actually started out in sales. Um, and what got me into the HR world, um, as most people probably don't know, was by way of recruiting. One of my first jobs was actually recruiting at an agency called ADECO. <laughs> which is um, pretty awesome. I didn't know what a recruiter was at that point. I was working sales at T-Mobile. Um, and actually, my my boss, uh, who, would, who would have been my boss at the recruiting agency, was a customer of mine at T-Mobile and was recruiting me. Um, then got curious there and how I was introduced into the wonderful world of all of the things in HR um, was the searches I was working on was primarily for HR managers, HR operations folks, um, even recruiting for recruiters, which is the hardest thing you can do, uh, especially starting off in that career as well. Um, so that's kind of how the bug bit me. But my you know, trajectory hasn't always been linear in HR because after that, I hopped into more of operations work. I've been in support engineering. Um, I also hopped into product management for a few years, um, which has defined a lot of how I think about design and you know, people products in, in this light of work. Uh, so it's been a really interesting kind of back and forth. And then I've seated anywhere from CHRO type of roles, talent and to end roles. Um, and now kind of ended up here uh, at X, really working on the talent experience and being a chaos pilot in this wonderful, radical place. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so, you know, I think your, you know, your, your background and your experience, I think one of the things I've always, uh, you know, appreciated and admired about you is the, um, just the, the breadth of the things that you do. And I obviously, you know, these podcasts tend to focus on HR stuff, but as you mentioned, you know, you wrote a children's book with your daughter. Uh, I know you're an accomplished musician, uh, as well. Uh, you mentioned the product chops and design thinking and UX chops that you have as well. Yeah, and, and there's a lot more, you know, so there's a lot of layers to <laughs> you, but, but to me, I think the common denominator through a lot of them is creativity. Um, and I would love to get a sense of you, like what, what stokes your creativity? What, what, where do you think that comes from? You know, what's really interesting for me, I, when I think about creativity, m most of the definition around creativity is like thinking of something new, something out there, something that, you know, has never been done before. And actually what stokes my creativity is very simple, reveling in constraints. Um, I think creativity and resourcefulness actually have a very strong connection with each other. And if you are able to be resourceful, it means you're also able to be creative. Right. And majority of the roles I've been in on the people side where sometimes it doesn't get the investment or sometimes you are told to work with kind of what you have, shifting that mindset to, OK, what are the constraints and how can I revel in that? And then what are the implicit roles that hold me back? 
because I think that's all that's there that can push me to the next stage of what it could be next. Right. So, you know, anywhere from, you you can use that analogy on anywhere from music, um, playing a guitar with no strings. Well, you can still make music by tapping on the guitar and making it a drum. Right. Uh, we have this thing at home. We love to go to the grocery store for certain items for foods, or if I just feel like cooking creativity again, is pulled out from that. I love to cook because it's it's kind of like a Zen meditation for me where I can get creative. But we have this thing on Sundays called No Safe Way Sundays, where my husband's like, okay, we're going to cook something totally different, but we're not going to the store for anything. Use whatever we have in the house. What does that look like? And so we're always kind of challenging different ways. And so it really stokes me from a creative standpoint to be able to revel in constraints. And so I'm always looking for that, okay, what could a constraint be? And is that implicit or is that actually a constraint? Yeah. You know, it's funny how you, I, I like the way you frame that and I can, I can relate to it, especially in the sense of, I think for a lot of people who are practicing in uh, HR or recruiting and like you, I came up from recruiting as well. Um, and I think I remember even back to my NPR days, um, you know, we, we invested heavily in employer brand as part of our strategy because we're a nonprofit and I had no money budget or resources that like that tr- the traditional recruiting ways, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't work for us. And so we had to come up with something different. And it was in the early days of, of social media as a kind of recruiting platform, uh, a recruiting channel, I would say. And, you know, so we're able to experiment and do a lot of things. But what I found was if there's something that I wanted to do, I had to teach myself how to do it. I, I, had, I had no budget. I couldn't pay anybody to do it. I couldn't do so. Like, do I want to make a podcast? Cool. Teach yourself how to edit audio. Like, do you want to, as you mentioned, do you want to learn a guitar? It's like, I think when you're in the environment with constraints put around you, and, and you have to find a way over that hill, it allows you to really come up with things that, you know, it might be a novel way of thinking. It's not creativity in terms of like, you're not reinventing something that's never existed before. You're just finding new ways to solve old problems. And, and I appreciate you framing it that way because I think too often, you know, the, the novel piece of creativity is, is something that we hang on, right? It's like, oh, it's gotta be this new thing. Like, no, it doesn't. Like one, one of my favorite books is uh, Steal Like an Artist by Austin Kleon. He's a uh, artist out of Austin. It's amazing. But he talks about how, you know, there are no original ideas and that's okay. It's like everything is built upon ideas on some level and inspiration on some level that's already existed. So like, do do you have uh, favorite data inputs perhaps that, that you you, you think might spark some of your creativity uh, and kind of maybe be the roots of some of the ways you think about this? Yeah. You know, I think for me also one one point on that is you talk about the novel idea of creativity and a lot of people can kind of say, oh, creativity, that's not for me. I actually see a lot of creativity happening in the operations space. For me, creativity is not just about what you produce, but how you produce it. And there's a lot that relates. So if you look at it as a pendulum, right? So you've got creativity in the middle, art is on one side. And then resourcefulness is on the other, like the tactics of like what actually happens. And there's a tension there because some people are like, I'm more this person. Where actually, I think the input for me is the mindset in which you want to look at getting creative, right? For some people, like I said, it's just being resourceful. But that's actually creative, right? Seeking better ways of doing things is actually very innovative, right? There's no idea that's new under the sun, honestly. And how you kind of put all of those things together 
is the formula for you to be able to push things to the next level, move to the status quo, surf any kind of chaos, pilot any kind of chaos, because you're like, okay, I've seen these things before. And the other thing too is, I'm going to introduce another fun language here, but be a purveyor of perspectives, right? And so it's kind of like being a world traveler and collecting all kinds of spices. You never know when you're going to be asked to create a dish. And it just so happens you might have this thing or this spice in your back pocket that'll make that thing sing and you just need a little bit of it. And that takes curiosity, right? So when you talk about like these inputs and things that I, I tend to think about is how can I get curious enough? How can I get brave enough to ask the question that's not being asked? Um, or maybe say the things that's being unsaid. I'm not always good at that, but I think it's also a reminder to set the conditions for that when you're like, okay, I do have to get creative. Maybe there's a question here I'm not asking. Or when I've asked all of the questions and input is, what question haven't I asked? That's another question, right? Um, And it gets you kind of thinking beyond just what's in front of you and actually unlocks kind of different parallel universes that you can kind of surf in and, and try out and, you know, purvey some of the different perspectives in those areas and apply them to things. Um, so I love that. For me, the input is about that curiosity and the input is really about that, okay, what kind of perspectives am I collecting? Because the mindset really is about, it's not what I produce that is creative, but it's how I produce it that could be novel and creative in itself that actually can create more impact. Yeah. Hey, look, we've all got MacGyver genes, right? Some are some are bigger, some are smaller, but they they, they live in all of us. So finding ways to tap into that and, uh, and solve problems in different ways, I think is key. Um, let's talk moonshots because I think, uh, so again, I think the audience, if you're not familiar with like the evolution, uh, you know, the moonshot factory was originally founded as Google X. It was an, like a, a radical innovation offshoot of Google when, you know, Google became, uh, well, when Alphabet was restructured, you know, Google X became X, the moonshot factory. Um, and it's just as a very different um, mandate as, as an organization, I think then, then typical kind of commercial, um, you know, especially technical platforms. And so for viewers that maybe aren't familiar with the Moonshot Factory, I'd love to have you open with just uh, an intro of what it's all about, um, to help kind of level set for them. Yeah, for sure. I, I think you can read up on the Moonshot Factory online, etc. But I mean, to kind of put it in plain, very simple terms, it's really a place where we create these radical new technologies to make the world a better place. Now, for those of you listening, you may say, okay, that sounds like motherhood and apple pie. I still don't know what you do. <laughs> well, I'll give you a stark kind of uh, data point. 99% of the things we try and do actually fail. And here is the fun part about the Moonshot Factory. It is mission-driven in a way that we are not afraid to get out there and have an idea and have it fail. Um, Or on the other side, even get out there and have an idea that could be a billion-dollar idea and shut that down for the mission of it becoming a hundred-billion-dollar idea at some point. And that's really hard because... I think at face value, when you think about the moonshot factory, you know, it's like, oh, it's an incubator. It's a this, it's a that. Actually, it's moonshots or bust, right? Yeah. Um, if you look at the market cap of Google, for example, you know, it's a trillion dollar organization, right? So if you, if you think about that, um, the moonshots that we have to produce have to meet a very high bar. 
they have to at least have an idea that produces some radical technology that changes the world and makes it a better place that can also be an accelerator to become a even just 1% of what Alphabet is. And 1% of that you know, trillion dollar market cap is what $100 billion, right? So it's a really interesting juxtaposition of like what qualifies as a moonshot. And for us, it really is about pushing that limit and being able to dispassionately assess that even if that technology seems really cool, and we could pursue that and we could make a radical, awesome business out of it that will still help the world. We know we can help it better because we don't want to make incremental. We want to make really monumental pushes um, towards the technology that we bring forward. So, you know, moonshots are bust. That's moonshots what moonshot factor is. It's fascinating because we've talked about, uh, you know, the idea of moonshots in HR as well. And I think it, you know, one of the, you, you I mentioned this kind of in the intro uh, of the podcast, but um, at one of the points when we were collaborating in the uh, Amplify Academy cohorts, you mentioned uh, HR's role is surfing the chaos. And that, uh, it, it, especially given everything we've been through in the last, you know, two plus years, like that resonated with me so much. And then when I saw that your title had evolved to chaos pilot, I got it right away because I knew the origin of it. Um, but for most people who might be coming across your LinkedIn profile, they're like chaos pilot, like what's yeah. a chaos pilot. So <laughs> I'll ask you their question. What's a chaos pilot? <laughs> Super awesome. No, thanks for asking that. So if you think of the evolution of like surfing the chaos, we were really underwater for the last two, you know, two and a half years and and it continues, right? The, the job is so fluid. You're learning all the time and you're learning how to swim. And I think it's also in this space, it's important to learn how to fly, right? In a place like the Moonshot Factory where a lot of things are just very chaotic and you can't control everything, right? What you can control is the altitude, and to figure out, okay, what's the higher level purpose of what we're doing? How do we bring people back to the mission? Um, how do we make sure? I mean, if you think about what a pilot does, I'm, I'm also a certified pilot as well. And one of the big of learnings for me, <laughs> well, one of the big learnings for me when I was going through flight training school was it wasn't actually about, you know, just, just looking at this wonderful sky in front of you and being kind of delusional that it's always going to be that way, right? There's different scenarios that you'll run into. And you kind of have to make sure that, you know, in your mind, you're flying a plane. In your other mind, you're looking at the terrain. In your ear is the air traffic controller, right? And then in the back of the cabin is all of the passengers that you're bringing along with you. And you kind of have the wherewithal to be able to make decisions very quickly, but still remain the altitude that you're flying to get to your destination. Now, how different is that, you know, and, and how actually how relative is that to how I work on a day-to-day -day basis? It's not much different because at the end of the day, you know, I, I run our, our talent function here at X. And what's really interesting is, I have folks in the cabin, right? My hiring managers, my candidates, et cetera. I have a destination, a target we need to hit, a project we need to move to a different milestone or need to fund, et cetera, right? I have controls and sometimes the joystick's broken, right? And so I have to make good what that looks like. We have the environment, the macroeconomic environment, the industry that I have to take into account as I'm trying to land the plane to a destination. So it's chaos all the time. But being a chaos pilot is understanding where you're at in your mind so that you can push towards whatever that destination looks like. So I just thought it was super appropriate, especially in a place where we're pushing the bounds on ideas that, or, or technology that doesn't have a previous benchmark, 
that is really interesting to go, okay, I don't even know what the terrain is, but I know I'm flying a plane. And sometimes my plane has to be a boat. And sometimes I'm flying a plane that only has controls, but there's no container around it. So what do we do to get creative to build a container for that so we can land? Um, but it requires, you know, being able to be a chaos pilot really requires you to be at the heart of the mission and understand where your trajectory of de- your destination is. Every good pilot has a good flight plan. But every good pilot with a flight plan understands it's not about the flight plan, but the planning that happens if you have to shift. So long story long, chaos pilot. (laughs) As an HR practitioner navigating the new world of work, your ability to learn, connect with resources, and build your global peer community is essential to your success. That's why I launched the Amplify Academy. The Amplify Academy was built from the ground up to help HR practitioners and people leaders efficiently and effectively connect with the diverse learning needs and resources for today and tomorrow. There are three components to the Academy. The Learning Lab is an AI learning platform that includes a range of courses, resources, templates, content, and more to support the learning needs around modern HR practices for today and tomorrow. The Amplify Academy Slack community is designed to help you build your global network equity and peer set with practitioners around the world who share your vision for progressive HR practices. And the Amplify Academy cohorts are four-week immersive peer learning programs designed to help people leaders build the skills and network they need to succeed as an HR leader in today's environment. Cohort students also learn from world-class people leaders from Katie Burke, Pat Waters, Claude Silver, Brian Power, AJ Thomas, and so many more. Want to supercharge your people team? Be sure to check out the Academy for Teams product, which is designed to give you and your people teams access to over 400 resources, the full community, and more across the Amplify Academy. Learn more at amplifytalent.com slash academy. Now, back to the show. So you're in an environment that is um, built for moonshots. Um, and when you're in an environment that's built for moonshots, that means uh, you build a lot of things that blow up and yeah. they don't work. And so looking back on your experience and this, you know, this, you can expand this beyond uh, the moonshot factory if you'd like. What's been your favorite um, fantastic disaster? Some, a, pro- a project you've, you've led that uh, just completely blew up, did not, uh, did not go in the direction that you thought it would. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my God. That is such a great question. And, and I love this because I can list you a litany of things (laughs) that didn't work. Um, I, I think most folks that know me, like we're always trying things and sometimes things just don't happen. Um, I'm going to send a very embarrassing fact here. Um, but at one point I had, tried this project of being an entrepreneur. Um, I had two years of experience of recruiting under my belt at the time. And I was like, oh, I love this agency stuff. I'm going to start my own thing, figure out what to do there, etc. I had a lick of what, <laughs> what that was about, what that looks like. Um, learned the hard way that it wasn't just about, you know, putting together you know, nice marketing spiel, nice services package. It's like I had all of the things lined up, right? The website, the domain, everything worked out, et cetera. And there were no clients. I mean, I was like, oh gosh, I have to really make sure there's a relationship. And then 
even that was really clunky. It was trying to pitch out like, oh, I'm going to hire you. I have two years experience in this thing. What does that look like? That's kind of weird, right? And so kind of my first bug of entrepreneurship was just even like trying that and that being kind of a watershed moment of breaking and going, oh gosh, that's really hard. Fast forward that to, you know, 15, 17 years later, you know, I've, I'm doing coaching as an entrepreneur as well. And like, I've learned all of these different things that actually help me to become creative on what I actually bring in to different projects and whatnot. Okay, maybe first of all, we need to take a look at the impact of where the business is going to start first. And so getting into product for me in my career really helped me hone that. Um, But again, it's just like the audacity of starting there, um, I think was a beautiful disaster for me. Um, Because if I never would have started, I never would have known. um, And I never would have known the pain, right? Sometimes you have to experience the pain so that you can be like, okay, that was not good. How do we make that better? And to this day, I'm going to say like, I'm not perfect at all of these different things, but I bring those lessons into even projects that we start, initiatives that we do. And again, that's a very small kind of innocuous example. Um, but you know, right out of college trying to start a recruiting firm. I mean, lots of folks have done many more wondrous things. Um, but again, it was like, I was building the the infrastructure of the thing without really building the heart that was going to go inside of it. And that was a really big, beautiful disaster for me because it also influenced how I think about standing initiatives up and different projects that we work on to this day. Well, I mean, pain is a hell of a teacher. That's for sure. Oh, and uh, yeah. uh, I think I'm I lost curious. a leg in that one. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily you grew it back. You, 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 you know, firmly landed on both feet uh, eventually, but richer in terms of your knowledge and, uh, you know, life experience. Um, let's talk more about moonshots, but maybe even not even work moonshots, right? Like what, what's a personal moonshot of yours? Okay. Personal moonshot. So most, most folks also, um, if you're just getting to know me, um, you know, I have kind of this bent on the future, right? I, I, every day I have the privilege of working at a place that's thinking about the future all the time, but also honoring the journey of where we've come from to build on that future. So we're not just like, Oh, the future can be, you know, everyone living on a salami. Like it's, <laughs> it's really like designing the environment for what that looks like. Though so that might be possible at one point. Um, but for me, I think the personal moonshot is creating a way in which, you know, if, if we are responsible now as adults, you know, to be working on the future currently, how do we make it much easier for the future, AKA as Whitney Houston put it, I believe the children are our future (laughs) and, and putting them in a space where they're interacting with that. I'm seeing a lot more of it happening but a personal moonshot for me is that I'm in a classroom one day and there's such generational diversity. You know, of course, you don't lose somebody's childhood or, you know, you, you, you have them grow up too quickly. But it's like we're learning from the future to create in the present such that when they do get there, they appreciate the past it's come from because they've had their fingerprints in it. Right. Involving them in the design. Everything we are creating today, our user group are these children, right? And so how do we think about the technologies we create? How do we think about the policies that we write? How do we think about all of the things that we do to input that early on so that we can shape what that user experience, I'm talking product language, looks like for them as they go through? I have three kids myself and everything that I do I try to build that with intention. Like a lot of folks always say, yeah, you do so many things. Like, how do you do all the things? 
Um, and I like to say, like, I, I like to, and I'm very clear that if I want to work on things that have to deal with the future, and I believe everybody is doing that if you're living today, right? That we have to work with them as well. And them being the future is always, the future is always growing up, right? But the thing is, is like, okay, do we have the humility in the current rules that we have right now to know that, you know, maybe adding a kid to an advisory board would be really interesting, right? Or, you know, even having, even having young people be part of your hiring committees, um, just to get a different perspective. Of course, there's a lot of things. I, I can see people getting prickly. Like, how do you do that? Labor loss. What does that look like? <laughs> but, but it's kind of like just my personal moonshot is that we don't have to get prickly about that. And we go, yeah, you know what? That makes sense. Wow. How does that happen? How can we make that a thing so that it's um, it's normalized as something that we talk about and we involve the few, they have, we always say like out of the mouths of babes are just like really amazing things that they say, Right. Why don't we take that and, and power that as foresight into the things that we're building today? So that, my personal moonshot is that we close the gap on that generational diversity and make it so much more normal for that. And then also in the same vein, the people that were the future before that are kind of like sundowning in their own journey, how do we take those people and their wisdom and mash that together and create a world we've never seen before? Yeah. So it won't, it won't happen in my lifetime, but it is a moonshot. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. Like I, I remember as I hear you describe kind of your personal moonshot, it makes me think about something that you shared with me once. Um, I think we were talking about design thinking uh, and it was an ethos that if you design for the most marginalized, you design for everyone. And that just, it really, it resonated with me a lot when you said it for a variety of reasons, but I think particularly also as it relates to how we think about, you know, des designing people strategies and, and, and really, uh, you know, being mindful of systemic inequity and working to build against that and safeguard against that. And I'd love to just get, you know, more depth from you on that comment for listeners, because I think it's, it's a profound way to think about building any product. And I'm not saying product in the physical sense of like a widget, but like we are in the product building business all the time in HR, whether it's a policy, a program, whatever it might be, like those can be considered products. And I love to like, how, how would you expand on that comment? Yeah. So expanding on that comment, I think if, if there was research done in the seventies and actually there's a white paper on this, um, it's called the curb cut effect, right? So the idea is that if you do build for the most marginalized populations, you can end up impacting so much more than just that population because you've really addressed the baseline, right? So if you think about um, the curb in a sidewalk, um, there was some really interesting innovation that was done to kind of say, okay, well, you know, we can't get folks like with wheelchairs over that. So that was originally built for people that were differently able. And they cut the curb to make it a slope. So that people can, you know, in these wheelchairs be, be wheeled in and much easier not having to, you know, if anyone's ever tried to, you know, put, put anything on wheels over a curb. But because that was built for that specific population, what was really interesting was that curb cut effect made made way for other unlocking of things like um, shipping carts, shopping carts, rollerblades, skateboards, right? People on the scooters. Um, an easier way to kind of unlock the rest of the population through that. So it's just a really interesting story because if we think about the po policies and the programs that we build, 
I would love to challenge us to think about who are the most marginalized populations in our organizations. And it's different for different organizations, right? It's really about inclusion and trying to figure out, okay, do we know that who we're building for is actually, you know, are actually folks that will have the most impact. If you create it in the space where, you know, you have some underrepresented groups that are experiencing the most marginalized things around your comp policy, for example, or, you know, whatever it may be in your organization, right? Or your internal transfer policies, your promotion policies, your performance management philosophies, et cetera. I think being able to have that mindset to say, okay, Let's look at the data. Who are our most marginalized based on what our mission is, what our vision is, what does that look like, especially in hiring, what does that look like? And you'll be surprised, like the things that you build in that sense, having that mindset will be an unlocker for so many other things, right? So an example, if you have one of your most marginalized populations um, in your organizations as maybe women in your organization, and you create a program around that, who is to say that that program can't be replicated and then built for high potentials in a co-ed space or high potentials in a different space or whatever other programs to help advance other people too. So there's ways in which if you're building for that and including those perspectives and that data, you can actually unlock bigger things than just the thing you're solving for, right? So I love, I love that. And actually credit to Annie Jean Baptiste who works a lot on product inclusion at Google because her and I have had some really great conversations around that. And it, it's just a great way to think about how we build product in general in this space. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that approach. And I think that is something that we can we can all learn from in kind of HR and people ops and just our whole world. Um, you know, so you, you and I, one of the first projects we got to collaborate on um, was you coming in as uh, one of the very first, the alpha class of guest instructors for the Amplify Academy. And actually, you were one of the guest instructors for both the alpha and the Bravo classes. And it was, it was, I mean, one of the things that's so fulfilling for me in the cohorts is, you know, I'm able to, you know, I'm fortunate to have a network of people, you know, friends like you who are generous with their time and willing to come and invest at and in helping build and support the next generation of people leaders. Um, but I love seeing the students' reactions when they watch, you know, the guest instructor's presentations and then obviously join the live AMA because I see the sparks flying. I see the ideas. Uh, I see the conversations that continue long after the AMAs are done. Um, and so it's it's very clear what the students are learning from the guest instructors. But I'd love to get your perspective. Like you've done that twice now. What have you learned from the students uh, during the cohort experience? Oh my gosh. I actually think I learned more than probably than what they learned from me, quite honestly. Um, at the meta level, the questions that come afterwards, the curiosity of the next generation of people leaders that you're, you know, really nurturing is so amazing because I think, I think of the reason of why I hopped out of product and came back into HR. Cause at first I was like, I made it out. Awesome. And I was like, Oh crap. I'm now a customer of HR. This is not good. <laughs> like, let's go back. Um, but I mean, just the brilliant questions of, you know, these individuals very passionate about the relationships and the strategic nature of those relationships, right? That, that it, it is an elevation of how they think about the business first, which makes them still people-centered. Just because you think about the business first doesn't mean you're not people-centered, right? 
And so it was really interesting to kind of see that like for them seeking, like, how do I understand the mission? How do I understand the business to apply that to my craft of being people centered so that, you know, there isn't any frustration and I can help align expectations and I can help contribute in an impactful way. I thought that was really awesome. Particularly, I think in the first cohort where it was just like rapid fire questions around, all right, we talk about strategic HR business partnership, but what does that actually mean? And how do I build design into that? The other thing um, is just the openness of this new generation and community of people leaders really thinking about it in a very, very different way. Um, And actually very excited to lean into the chaos. Um, because the fact that they're even in, in these, you know, cohorts is a sign that they're like, okay, I want to take this to the next level. And I'm in awe of that because I think most leaders don't realize that that is the wave of the people leaders that are coming into the workforce and the wave of the next generation of those that are in succession for these, you know, currently seated CPO and CHRO roles, right. Are people who are going to you know, make HR, not HR, if that makes sense. Like HR is a thing we do, not who we are. Um, And I learned that just from interacting with folks, but the ability for them to have fluidity in that knowledge and be open to it while also maintaining that I have to hold a policy line. I have to hold a program line around this, but I have to understand the mission and make sure that it still works out. Um, That was for me, just, I took away that from both of the cohorts. um, And that was awesome. Yeah. It's cool to hear. And uh, like I said, I mean, I, you were very generous with time. I mean, I think both of them, the Q&A period actually went over the allotted hour we had and you hung out to continue answering questions. So, uh, you know, a, a testament to the, the amount of people wanted to learn from you. Um, as you know, we wrap up every podcast with a lightning round just to help the audience get to know you a little bit more. And we always kick things off with music. And I know music is important to you. Uh, I'm checking out your top three artists. Uh, who would they be? Ooh, okay. Top three artists. Um, one that's probably not well known, but is really good is John Splitoff. Um, he's got kind of this like neo R&B soul vibe, but it's very kind of new age. <laughs> so that's really awesome. Um, I also, also love rock music. Um, so there's a band called The Perfect Circle. Previous lead singer um, was from Tool. It, really awesome. Check them out as well. Um, and then I would say, man, this is, this is a tie up for me. Um, and it's probably a little controversial for some folks, but U2 is on my list. Yeah. U2 has just got a lot of good, I'm a lyrics person, yeah. you know, so, you know, singer songwriters are awesome, but I think some of the things that U2 has been able to, has they, they've been the curb cut effect for folks like Coldplay <laughs> and One Republic and all of that as well, just with, with, with the sound that they bring and the vibe that they bring as well. But. That was, yeah. those are, that's really hard for me to pick just three. So I, no, yeah. no, I, I, I dig it. And as a, uh, as the Gen X guy, I can also appreciate the, uh, the evolution of you two, uh, over their career, which is also something yeah. cool about them. Um, let's switch yeah. to TV. Uh, what was your favorite, uh, or latest binge watch? Latest binge watch. Okay. Um, this was actually on my United flight to London. Um, the Gilded Age on HBO. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. It's got Cynthia Nixon in there. Um, but it is about kind of the um, new colonies that were forming in the East Coast 
around like the Victorian age. Like it, it's just a really interesting way to think about like class and like the place of a woman um, in that. And there was just a lot of things in there that resonated with me. There's this like really cool quote where they said, um, you know, why, why, why are they so hard on women? Like, what is it about me that is so different? And they're like, well, because to them, you're the future. And that's scary to them because these institutions have been around for a while. So just get ready to run into walls yeah, and it's okay. Wow. You know? And so it's like, there's some really cool messaging in there too, just around like being like one that's shaking things up um, in a place that has had like these very set rules in society. Um, so that's a good one. They're only one <laughs> season. So I'm waiting for season two. <laughs> I think I can see why that would resonate with you. Um, yeah, right? Yes. Uh, okay, we're going to shift to careers. So I know you've been oh. a musician. Uh, I know you're a pilot. I know, obviously, you've worked in HR and recruiting. I know you're an author. You cannot do any of those things. Uh, what would you be doing if you weren't doing any of those things? Oh, my gosh. What would I be doing if I weren't doing any of those things? Well, I had a little practice of that this weekend. I think I slept for 14 hours. (laughs) (laughs) Kidding aside, kidding aside. um, I'd probably be either in the Philippines or Latin America helping stand up a school somewhere. I don't know, working (laughs) in the Peace Corps maybe. Um, Bringing like music and English and art as something to teach um, young people in different communities. So Very cool. Yeah. Uh, AJ, so last question. Cool, so. No, 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 it is cool. I think it is cool. It's very fitting as well. So that uh, also is not uh, not not a surprising aspiration. Um, yeah. Who is one HR leader who you admire and why? Okay, one HR leader that admi- I admire is actually Donna Morris. And she was previously, well, she is currently, I think, the chief people officer at Walmart now. But I admire her because of her previous role that she had at Adobe. Um, where it was a blend of like the product and the HR. I think she ran all of people experience and the customer experience. And I just thought that was so brilliant. And I kind of have been following her career and seeing kind of what she's doing in different spaces and just the humility of the things that she, you know, is able to kind of get involved with. Um, And just the sheer audacity of like having those two functions merge and being able to lead that. I don't actually consider her an HR leader. Like she is very much that human centered who happens to be in HR. And so I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, AJ, I appreciate you sharing your, uh, your career, your story, uh, your wisdom with all of us. And uh, thanks for all you do in the space. And I just appreciate yeah. you and I appreciate you making time to uh, join the podcast. Thank you. Looking forward to learning so much more. There's a lot to learn in this space and student for life right here. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) All right. Thanks, AJ. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what Redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.